Uh, And so what I want to do this morning is have you turn to Romans chapter 2, please, and put your finger in the Bible. And we're going to look at the wrath of God. And today our topic is really the ultimate wrath of God, and uh, that is the issue of hell and the lake of fire. We need to have an understanding of it, may I say, that this doctrine is being abandoned regularly by the church, and it is being dismissed And so we're going to discuss the issue of hell this morning and try to get an understanding of why it exists. And so we're going to take a look at the lake of fire. Now there are three uses for the word hell in the Bible. In the Old Testament, hell is, uh, the Hebrew word is sheol or the grave, and Jesus gave an illustration of what that was like. And there was uh, a lower compartment and an upper compartment called Paradise or Abraham's bosom. Shoal was a place where people were waiting until the day of judgment. Uh, in Peter, we see the word hell, and another place that it's used is called Tartarus. And that is a place where God had locked up the angels of Genesis 6 until the time of the end. And then we hear in the New Testament a constant reference to hell, but in the original language it is Gehenna. And Gehenna is the term for the lake of fire as we see it revealed in the book of Revelation. So what we're talking about concerning hell is Gehenna or the lake of fire, the final judgment of God against all sin, evil, and wickedness. That's what we're focusing on this morning concerning the wrath of God. And so, I have to ask a couple questions. How can a loving God and a good God send anyone to hell? Now, that's the constant question. It's a question that's being asked in the church. Books are being written. And many people are deciding that God is too nice and too good to put anybody in eternal hell or punishment. The question then begs this. How can a holy God not bring justice? How could a good and holy God allow evil to have its way? And So when we get through with this study, I hope you'll begin to understand that in fact God is good and there must, absolutely must be a hell. It is essential to the purposes of God. So let's take a look at it. Let's understand one thing. This is all about the nature of things. So when we look at the nature of things, we're going to see that God cannot accommodate evil. That's His nature. Let's look at the nature of God. God is a what? Holy God. God is a holy God. He is righteous, true, and good in His nature. So therefore, He cannot accommodate evil and that which is opposed to him. Would you agree with this? His nature must expel sin or he would not be just and good. God cannot coexist with sin or evil or injustice or rebellion or he himself would become unjust. Are you getting this? If he is purely just and purely good, for him to allow evil, he would no longer be good. Does this make sense? Let me give you some some illustrations. I've got a few here. Uh, Can light exist with darkness? 
Light by its nature expels darkness. God by his nature cannot allow evil because he is good. If he allows evil, he's no longer good. If light allows darkness, it's no longer light and no longer lit. Is water still pure if you drop poison in it? You can't convolute, you can't condescend and and eliminate purity in any measure or it will no longer be pure. Uh, Are you getting this? All right. Can truth coexist with a lie? No, a truth must diminish a lie in its own nature. It extinguishes a lie and it cannot exist. If it allows a portion of the lie to exist, is it still truth? No, it's not. And that's why we hate true and false questions on tests. Is there justice if evil is allowed to continue? No, and that is what is ultimately at stake here. Evil does exist now only by the grace of God allowing it to, but in His goodness He is patient before He brings full justice against evil. He is patiently waiting that more may come to salvation. But there is a time when God in His justice and His goodness absolutely must and has to eliminate wickedness, sin, and evil. By His nature, He must. Do you see this? If you understand a holy God. Amen? And so let's go further. Now let's take a look at the nature of man. There's a few things here. Number one, man is eternal. And this is what we continue to forget. Man is eternal. Even in his fallen nature, he will live eternally. And so if man dies in an unregenerate way and in his sin and in his wickedness, he will live eternally wicked. That is the nature of man. Anything God creates has his essence and being which is eternal in it. So man is eternal. God is a glorious eternal being with the capacity to love and care and to feel and express his attributes Now, this is what's amazing about man. We look at mankind and we say, but there's so many nice people. And that's the thing about man. Though we are fallen and sinful, there's a lot of nice people, aren't there? And so we look at that and we think, gee, how could God do that? Little Aunt Betty is so sweet and so nice. She rejects Jesus Christ, but she's a nice lady. She makes cupcakes for kids and she's sweet. And we cannot... We cannot fathom that we would see her go to hell. God, you're so good. How could you do that to someone so nice? But the niceness about mankind is a reflection of God. The only reason you and I are nice is because we're made in His image. The amazing and profound thing about mankind is that every human baby has the capacity to love, to care, and to to, uh, be nice and to be Friendly and wonderful because we all have the capacity made in God's image to reflect Him. But when you take us out of the common grace of life on earth and put us in our eternal state of wickedness, we will not reflect His glory anymore. Even the lost can be nice people, good people, because they are in the image of God. 
And so this causes us to say, how could good people go to hell? How could nice people go to hell? Well, they're nice here in this condition because they're made in God's image. But removed from His presence on earth, something will take place. You see, the second issue is that man is depraved. We are fallen. We have the capacity of evil and sin. Every one of us has the capacity to be an Adolf Hitler. And worse. In fact, when you look at those who are outside the condition of God's grace on earth, we have the capacity to become as evil as demons or Satan himself. Because rebellion under an eternal state will get there. You see, we look at man as a victim of sin. Man is not a victim of sin. Man is a perpetuator of sin. We're not victims here. We're the ones who are creating the problem. The Bible does not see man as innocent but guilty and in perpetual rebellion. And Christians should know this better than anyone because we have the presence of God's Holy Spirit that is continually contending with our flesh. Aren't we the ones who should fully understand the depravity of man because we're fighting against it as we're being sanctified? God is causing a war in our minds with our members that we are being progressively sanctified. Thank God He positionally took us and made us holy immediately. And now that's working out in us. We as people of God should fully understand the depravity of evil because we're so easily beset by it. Somebody say amen on that. So we can see it. We can know it. Brothers and sisters, without the Spirit of God in you, come on. We wouldn't be sitting together here this morning. Could I ask you this? Hell and the victim mentality is a wrong point of view. How could God send anyone to hell? That's a victim mentality. The question is, how could He not? How could He not send the entire human race to hell? But by His grace, He sent His Son to rescue us. That's the question. How that God could love even me is the point of hell. Could I ask you a question? If a man falls from a building, is gravity evil for allowing him to die? It's a law. It's a principle. And the principle of evil abiding with good cannot exist. Injustice with justice cannot exist. Gravity's not wrong. When you work against gravity, you will die. And gravity's not bad for it. Again, the point being, Jesus came to save us from that fall and rescued us. Turn to Romans chapter 2, our text this morning, and we will see what the situation requires. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. As I read this out of the ESV English Standard, God's given me a, a, a revelation on this verse. I want to share it with you. It's concerning judgment. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, 
the judge, practice the very same things. That's called hypocrisy. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you would escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, impenitent heart, you are storing wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We're without excuse, brothers and sisters. But what's important about this verse is this. Think about it, just philosophically, logically. If we have the capacity to judge others and the ability to discern if someone's wrong or unjust, wouldn't God have that same capacity? So he's saying, who are you to judge someone and not consider God's judgment? Right? Right? If someone says this, consider this. If someone says, I don't think a good God could send anyone to hell. Ask them, by what judgment do they make that? And if they have the capacity to judge, don't they think God does? And the next time they get assaulted by someone or their house robbed and they feel that there should be recompense for that injustice, Doesn't God have the same right they do? As we offend and rob God daily of all that He has given us? Oh man, who are we to judge? And who are we to judge God to say He can do this and He can't do that? Whoa. We better watch out. Well, let's talk about the nature of hell, shall we? Let's look at the nature of hell. It's very dramatic. It's very frightening, and I don't take it lightly, and I don't make jokes about it. It's scary. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Don't be afraid of them that kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There should be a holy fear here of God. But if we can eliminate hell, then we don't have to worry about him so much, do we? Hell is described as the abode of the wicked, the state of pain, trouble, and sorrow. It's characterized by shame and contempt, a realm of affliction. Hell is a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is where the worm uh, does not uh, die. The wicked are described as being beaten with stripes. They are recipients of God's wrath and indignation. They experience tribulation and anguish, and they suffer punishment as a manifestation of the Lord's vengeance. Hell is a place of utter torment where there is no rest. And there are, in fact, even degrees of that torment. Now that sounds pretty bad. Why all that? Why all that? Is God that sadistic? I can't handle that. We don't want to handle that. So what we do is dismiss it. We have no right to do that. If you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, then you have to take it all. And Jesus warned us about hell. Why? Because the Savior came to save us from that destination. That's key. 
That's key. Why would God do something like that? Why torment? Can I share something with you that hell is not for moral improvement? Hell was not designed to correct those who are in it. It's not going to make anybody better. But it is necessary for justice. You see, by nature, sin and rebellion will always resist God. The folks in hell and those in the torment of hell will have one thing to say continually, eternally. God, I hate you. We project our feelings onto those who would be in hell as if, I'm sorry, I'm repentant, I'm sorry. But you have to remember, they are in an eternal state of rebellion and sin. Their continual response to God would be, I hate you. And so the torment is this. They are in a place where they hate God and are under His rulership. Torment is a consequence of containing rebellion. Consider this now. Torment is a consequence of containing rebellion. That which is rebellious wants to get out. That which is rebellious wants to break the rules. That which is rebellious wants to hate and come against. When you restrain that rebellion, it is torture to the rebellion. Do you see this? And so that's what the torment is. Evil is not allowing, is not allowed to be evil. Sin and rebellion is no longer allowed to be rebellious and sinful. And that is torment to those who are under that conviction. Torment is that which is afflicting the nature of a thing. You are tormented or afflicted when the nature of who you are is restrained and not allowed to be the nature of who you are. So if someone is eternally wicked and eternally sinful and no longer allowed to demonstrate and manifest that, they are under torment. It's not because God is sadistic. It's because He's no longer allowing sin, evil, and wickedness to promote itself which creates the torment to the nature of its wickedness. All right? By nature. Truth does not negotiate with a lie. Truth does not negotiate with a lie. Write it down. Make a bumper sticker or a lapel pen. Consider this. Truth does not negotiate with a lie. If truth would begin to sit at the bargaining table with a lie, what would happen? Truth always crushes a lie. Truth by its nature always suppresses the lie. And in a sense, that's what hell is. It is goodness and holiness suppressing evil and wickedness. It can never allow it to exist. Though it is eternal, it has no right to continue to propagate. Therefore, it must be contained and it must be suppressed by the very nature of what is true and what is good and what is holy. And that is the torment of wickedness and evil and sin. That is the torment of hell, that it is not allowed to be in its perpetuating motion. Now, 
Righteousness afflicts unrighteousness by its nature. Why eternal punishment? Let's talk about that for a minute. Why eternal punishment? True justice allows the possibility that a wrongdoer may be required to suffer a penalty that's longer than the duration of the offense. Let me just give you an example. It might take two minutes to kill someone. So when they're convicted of the murder, do you give them a two-minute sentence? Typically, and scripturally, according to the Bible, how long is the sentence for murder? Life. It only took two minutes to kill the guy. Is it an issue of time? It is not an issue of time. Hell is not an issue of time. Oh, but it's for eternity. You're thinking in time sequence and time continuum. It is not an issue of time. When someone murders someone and it takes two seconds, a half hour, or an hour, or whatever amount of time, we don't put the punishment on them according to how long it took them to propagate it. We put the punishment for the height of the crime, for the depth of the crime. To offend a holy, eternal God deserves the punishment of eternity. It's the offense that creates the punishment. Now, what happens then is the skeptic wants to tell God how long the penalty should be. Man wants to tell God how long we should suffer. And then there's a group in the church that, again, because God is so good and so loving, He wants to annihilate people and not have them in eternal condemnation. But the problem with that is there are eternal beings. You can't annihilate the life of God that was given to these people. There is no annihilation of that life. We are eternal beings. Therefore, it must be contained. Hell is a containment of evil. It's the same reason we have a prison system here. Why does someone go to jail? To take them out of society. Because they are rebellious, sinful, and wicked. And if they are not put in jail, they will affect society. Now, because we are not in an eternal state, and because of the grace of God that permeates this planet, people can come to a knowledge of Jesus. People can be reformed. People can come out of prison and change their way of life and live a good life. Amen? Thank God for that. That's the grace of God coming to us. But once we cross into the eternal state, there is no changing. Let me give you a classic example of that found in the book of Revelation. We will see in Revelation 7.20 that Satan will be locked up for a thousand years. When Christ rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years, Satan will be locked up in prison. When Satan is loosed after that thousand years, guess what happens? He comes back to deceive the earth and bring and lead a rebellion against God. Prison didn't work for him. Why? Because he's in an eternal state of rebellion and evil. When man crosses over into death, if his sin and nature has not been changed by God, he will be locked into an eternal state and nature of fallenness. 
And therefore, we must have some place to contain the wickedness of not only the devil and his angels, but fallen man in their wicked state as well. This is logic. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we by nature are children of wrath. That's our nature, fallen in Adam. We are rebellious and evil. Romans 6.18 says, Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Now, that is a very key component to the nature of sin. Paul says that as children of wrath, children of Adam, fallen and depraved, sin has an ever-increasing power. This is the nature of rebellion. This is the nature of sin and evil. Apart from God, it will continue to grow. It has an ever-increasing power. Most of that power is restrained on planet Earth. Why? Because of God's common grace, again. Because, now we see evil, don't we? But people who do evil are really bad people. People, in general, are good people. That's not biblical. People, in general, are evil under sin and wickedness. Only God can save us and change us out of Adam and put us in Christ. Salvation is a radical, radical change of nature. It's not a belief system. It's a nature change. You are taken out of Adam when you die on the cross with Jesus and you are given the nature of Christ. Now, if you die without that change of nature by the blood of Jesus Christ, you will be eternally wicked. And what will happen? There will be ever-increasing sin or wickedness. Remember I talked about Aunt Betty? God bless Aunt Betty. Nice lady. She, she didn't receive Jesus. She didn't want to. She didn't receive Christ. But she was nice. Make cupcakes, celebrated birthdays, remembered your cards and letters. Nice lady. She never did things bad to anybody. Well, the reason being is that that worked for her well-being. If she was nice, she got niceness back. She just learned that. But the problem with Aunt Betty who dies without knowing Jesus is this. She has now become in an eternal state of depravity. If we were to visit Aunt Betty a hundred years from when she died, outside of the grace of God and in a place where she is left to her own wickedness, she'll not look the same. If we look at Aunt Betty 10,000 years, now I'm talking in time considering eternity so you can wrap your head around it. But if Aunt Betty left to ever-increasing wickedness 10,000 years from the time she was released into the full state of her nature, she would look like a demon and act like Satan himself. So what must be done when God comes to restore His order to the universe and all creation? What must be done is we must contain all evil and all wickedness. Therefore, God has prepared a place for the devil and his angels. Jesus created hell, the lake of fire, for a place to secure the devil and his angels. 
but man fell as well. And now man, an eternal being in a fallen state, will move in the same direction as Satan and the demons. And they too must be contained. And so the lake of fire is now a place where God contains all evil, sin, and wickedness for all eternity so that it will no longer have the opportunity to promote rebellion and wickedness in God's creation. Why fire? Why a lake of fire? I'm not sure. I don't know. But it seems on some level that that fire, as is spoken in our language and in our realm of the physical, that fire seems to be somehow the force or the power that contains the spirits of men and demons. It must be some kind of element of God's holiness. You remember the fire that was on the burning bush. It was some kind of element that didn't burn the bush. But it was some kind of holy element that looked like fire. And I'm thinking it's a lake of fire, not because God is sadistic in this and that, but because it is the element that contains spirit and will not allow spirit to leave that place. Hell, death, the grave, everything connected to sin and evil is put in that containment center so it can no longer penetrate the work of God. And we who are in Christ will be safe from it forever. And so, this is not the act of a sadistic God. This is the only solution for God's perfect order. So, there is only one thing left for us to do. First of all, I'll say two things. Fall on your knees and thank God that He saved your soul. That your eyes are opened. And that you, knowing you were a sinner, came to salvation by the love of Jesus Christ. Secondly, get up off your knees and get out there and warn this world of an eternal judgment that they need their nature to be changed. And it is a free gift by the love of God. They're falling to a demise and a destruction that's eternal. And we must reach them at any cost and at all costs. And I know Pastor Charlie poured out his heart to you about evangelism. We have got to tell this world this news. Now, they're not going to like it. They're going to reject it. Some will. But if one accepts it, and maybe two, and maybe three in our lives, multiply that by the number of people here, we can continue to save those from the fire of judgment. And so let's bow our heads in the presence of God.